This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads at our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Blessed are the merciful. We've just read together from Matthew 18 what's known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we'll look at that in a little while. But essentially what we have is is an extension of a one-liner, if you like, that Jesus talked about in another famous episode of his ministry, known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 6 and 7, we have the details of his teachings on various topics. And at the start of chapter 5, we have a series of blesseds. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on. And then we come to verse 7 of chapter 5, where we read, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now each of these one-liners can be opened up into a wealth of spiritual teaching that Jesus, in his seemingly simplistic words, is endeavouring to teach us. And the principle behind this particular one-liner, a principle lost on, on the unforgiving servant, is that mercy will be shown to those who show mercy. Now, mercy is something that someone in a position of power or control shows to someone else who is within their power. And not only that, the very act of mercy shows to us that actually the punishment that they were about to receive was one that was justified. And this is the relationship that we have with God. So today I'm going to expand this idea in three ways in order to bring life, if you like, to the teachings or or principle of this one-liner, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We're going to look firstly, why are we in need of mercy? And then secondly, how do we obtain such mercy? And then finally, number three, why should we show that mercy? So why are we in need of mercy? Well, it's Paul in the book of Romans that explains in some detail the relationship that we have with God and the position that mankind in general finds themselves in because of the actions of Adam in his original uh, disobedience to the will of God. Paul talks about man's sinful nature and how that has caused a breach in this relationship that we have with God. And it's Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that we, we read these words. It said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spreads to all men, because all have sinned. So sin, put simply, is disobedience to the will of God. And none of us here today can claim to be sinless. We all do things wrong, whether that is in thought or word or deed. So we're all then in need of mercy. Why is that? Well, again, Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 6, tells us where we will end up if mercy is not sought and given. Because at verse 23, it clearly states, the wages of sin is death. That's what we will have earned because of our actions in relation to God. The sentence being applied to Adam in Genesis 3 
applies to us today. For dust we are, and to dust we shall return. So we are in need of forgiveness. We're in need of a way of escape from the sentence that has been rightly applied on all men since the beginning of time. A sentence that could only be removed by the mercy of God. So to receive mercy, we have to accept that the sentence or, or punishment is just and plead for God to set aside such punishment and offer to us life as opposed to death. It's Peter in verse 21 of Matthew 18 that sparks off this parable uh, from Jesus. Peter asks the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter probably thinks he's being ultra-generous suggesting that someone could sin against you repeatedly as much as on seven occasions and you would forgive them. It sounds a a reasonable proposition, doesn't it? Unless, of course, you are the son of God. Seventy times seven was the reply. A response that didn't mean 490 times because no one's counting. It was an unlimited number of times that forgiveness could be sought and given. The reason for that is simple. It's not three strikes and you're out. God recognises that he set a high bar and is looking to us to try, try and try again. It's, uh, It's Thomas Edison who once said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The more certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. And the mercy of God allows us to do just that. So Jesus in the parable then goes on to talk about a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now we come to the servant who owed 10,000 talents but didn't have the wherewithal to pay his master's debt. Now just to put that debt into some perspective, the total annual tribute payable by the whole of Judea, Samaria and Idumea combined at this time was only 600 talents. A bit of a contrast to the 10,000 talents owed by the servant. A talent is worth around 6,000 denarii and as one denarii was equivalent to a day's pay it would have taken him more than 150,000 years of continuous payment, of continuous working life to pay off the debt. So obviously, he had no means of paying that debt, and that's the point. And his due reward was to be sold, essentially, an act that would bring to the end of his life. So he sought mercy. And the king, being merciful, withdrew the debt, offering forgiveness, and set him free. He could start again. He could start afresh. All his past debts had been wiped clean. He was indeed a new man. So what is Jesus telling us here? Well, he's telling us that the king, who in our parable is God himself, is a just and forgiving ruler. One who is ready, willing and able to write off the insurmountable burden that each one of us has built up 
by the actions in our life so that we can remain active in the service to our God. The debt that we have is sin. But God is telling us that we can escape the punishment for sin, which is death, by our open and honest approach to him, seeking for his mercy and his forgiveness. Which brings us to our second part. How do we obtain such mercy? Well, in the Gospel of John, he records the words of Jesus, which in essence tells us the answer to this question. John 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gateway, the door of the sheepfold, as we have in John chapter 10. I am the door, says Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am a good shepherd. (coughs) The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. So there has to be an acceptance that Jesus is the way to reconcile us with God. Jesus is the saviour. Jesus is the son of God placed on the earth by the power of the father upon Mary so that Jesus being mortal and having been born of the flesh may offer his whole life as a man in obedience to the will of God. He is our role model, if you like. He's our template, the standard that God requires the very manifestation of the character of God in a man. Indeed, as John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. That was Jesus. The example set by Jesus was then one of perfection. Hebrews 4 tells us about Jesus says he is our high priest he is our our mediator our conduit to god his father but he was no ordinary high priest he was unique hebrews 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now if it was simply the case that we had to attain to the height that Jesus showed, that level of perfection in our characters and in our understanding, then we would still be doomed. We would be like the servant, having a debt so huge that we could never think of repaying it. We would remain with the sentence of death upon us. But God is a God of mercy, having there before us, through Jesus, the way of life. A life encapsulated in perhaps one of the most well-known verses in Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But their record goes on to explain the purpose behind his presence. Verse 17. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the starting point then in receipt of this mercy from God is belief. Belief in Jesus the Saviour. And once that belief has been established and an appreciation of his work of salvation understood, then you take the next step. What step? Well, it's Mark's Gospel that has the answer to that with the last words or some of the last words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. Mark 16 verse 15 he instructs the the disciples go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. Baptism the full immersion of a consenting adult in water not the sprinkling on the head of an infant. We've already established the initial criteria that was needed, which is belief. You have to have faith in Jesus before you can take the next step. A step like the one given to the unfaithful servant, who by the mercy of the king had all his debts written off. And that's what baptism does. Jesus, this this sinless man, who betrayed the character of God throughout his ministry was crucified on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We've already read that death was the payment for a sinful life, but Jesus did not disobey God. So that punishment was unjust for him. So as Jesus himself predicted, after three days, he was raised to life again by the mercy of the Father. So why does that matter? Well, it matters because... Now we have an escape route that is open to us by association with his death. The lowering and the raising of the body in water symbolising death and resurrection. Meaning we ourselves figuratively die, our past debts are washed away and we start a new life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. We're renewed. It's a a new body with all debts washed away. And the result of such actions means we are then indebted to change the way in which we live our, our lives. Indeed, change our very characters to reflect more nearly the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And central to that is the third of our uh, points of discussion today, which is why we should show mercy. So once we've accepted the need for mercy by our belief in Jesus, once we've taken actions to obtain such mercy by our baptism, then we have to behave differently by showing such mercy to others a change in the way that we think and speak and act it's Paul again in Colossians that directs us to this very point to the character that needs to be displayed by this new man in Christ Jesus 
Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? That's what the unfaithful servant never even thought about as he left the presence of the king and met another of the king's servants. But this time, he was the one in the position of power and authority. So in Matthew 18, verse 28, it says, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, and went and threw him into prison, till he should pay the debt. Now again, let's put this debt into some context. 100 denarii is, what, three months' wages? A problem, surely, but not an insurmountable problem. In fact, it's 600,000 times less of a problem than the first servant had with the king. But forget the numbers. Think of the principle. The first servant essentially is like us all. We, we rack up debts each day in our relationship with God. But God doesn't want to, to have us this this selfish relationship with him it's got to be it's not got to be what's in it for me type of of relationship what god has done for us he wants for us to do for others think of the lord's prayer give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins forgive us our debts as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us we can't seek the removal of our debts our insurmountable mountain of debts payable only by the death of God's son and then turn round and seek full payment and punishment for a debt or a wrongdoing done to us by others God wants us to be like Jesus and unfortunately we're not we disobey God continually so much so that the accumulated debt is astronomical and there is no way available for us to repay it. So God sent Jesus, a sinless man, to die on the cross to wash away all our sinful debts. And we start afresh. That's why we talked about baptism. But even after baptism, we are not free from sin. We may try, and we should try, to be more like Jesus, but we still fail. We still rack up further debts. So what do we do now? Do we start again? Be born again? Go back into the waters of baptism? Have another go? No. We can only be a new man once. We can only start afresh once. Nevertheless, we can still wash the slate clean and reduce our debt burden to a more manageable problem. Many times in the ministry of Jesus, people would seek him out and ask for mercy. 
You could think of the two men in Matthew 9. Son of David, have mercy on us, was the cry. Do you believe I am able to do this? Yes, they did. According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. There are other occasions when the cry went out, have mercy on us. But it's perhaps the incident in the temple that we should focus on. An incident that offers similar parallels to the actions of the unforgiving servant. We're in the Gospel of Luke now, um, chapter 18. And at verse 9 it says, Also Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus here is talking about the rulers of the day. He's talking about the scribes and Pharisees whose self-righteous attitude was contrary to the teachings of God. You may well know the seven walls listed in Matthew 23 directed at their condemnation. A chapter that lays bare their false belief in their superior standing before God. So the parable in Luke 18 continues. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Have you noticed how this man was described by Jesus? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He's in a world of his own. His own self-righteous little bubble. You see, God's forgiven me. I'm saved. And not only am I saved, but I'm, I'm not like him. Now, he didn't know this man. Although tax collectors like Matthew himself, remember, were the lowest of the law. But not to Jesus. You see, to Jesus, they were all sinful men. Who he wanted to save. Even to the extent of giving his life so that such mercy is possible. Just keep your finger in Luke and for a moment just look at Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9 verse 9 it says, As Jesus passed on from there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, Matthew's house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance and we're all sinners but the Pharisee didn't see himself in that light he saw himself as someone who is superior perhaps someone like the unforgiving servant who didn't think that such rules applied to himself look at the comparison with the tax collector back in Luke 18 verse 13 the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbled himself will be exalted. Okay, so where are we now in our parable? Well, we've talked about faith in Jesus. We've talked about our, our commitment to Jesus in baptism, where all our debts are forgiven. And we've looked at how we should each behave with each other and show love and compassion and forgiveness as God has shown to us. But I'd like to go back to the idea that even after baptism, we're not free from sin. We may try, and we should try, to be more like Jesus, but we still fail. We still rack up these debts. So what do we do now? As I said, we can't start again. We can't be born again. Nevertheless, we can still wash the slate clean and reduce our debt burden to a manageable proportion. I want to take you to the upper room where Jesus is meeting with his disciples for the last time before his trial of crucifixion. They had eaten their meal and Jesus, knowing the events that would unfold, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. We're in John's Gospel, chapter 13. And the narrative moves on from there to a discourse with, with, with Peter, which we'll come back to. But just look at the conclusion of the matter, the instruction from Jesus, verse 13. Do you know what I have done to you? Said Jesus. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Indeed, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. We should not be like the Pharisee, looking down on the next man with an, with an air of superiority. We should not compare ourselves with ourselves. Yes, we may be more or better educated. We may have, uh, have better diction and speech. We might have a, a nicer house and posh clothes, but that doesn't matter. Not with God. Because God looks on the heart, and sure should we, because our reference is Jesus. So how do we overcome then this issue of sin? How do, how do we cleanse ourselves, rid ourselves of sin once we started our journey? Well, the answer lies with that discourse with Peter. When Jesus went to wash his feet, he objected. It's perhaps something that we would have done. But when Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, Peter immediately said, Lord, not my feet only, but, but my hands and my head. That's when Jesus opens up the whole teaching that applies to all those who, having committed their life to him, still fall short of the standard that he has set. As Paul have it in, as it in, uh, in Philippians, I press toward the goal of the price of the upward 
call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a continual process, even for Paul. As I said about Thomas Edison, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is to try one more time. And the reply from Jesus to Peter in John 13 was clear. What he should do. He who bathes needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. He who bathes, that's baptism. The full immersion of a consenting adult in water. If you've done that, says Jesus, if you've done that, you only have to wash your feet to be clean. You only need to wash off the dust that you collect on your everyday journey to the kingdom. You don't need another bath. But how do you do that? But Paul again, Ephesians 5, verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Washed by the word. Allow the word of God and the teachings of Jesus to penetrate and affect how we live our lives. Allow it to change our characters that we may continue to seek him in prayer and pray like the tax collector in the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so we come full circle. Back to our parable in Matthew. In verse 31 it goes on, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. God knows everything. He knows what we do. He knows what we say. He even knows what we think. Even when we have committed our lives to God, we still need to remember the calling, the calling of Jesus. How we have it in, in Philippians 2, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, salvation is coming to the world. It's being promised by God. The kingdom of God is coming. And we have been invited to embrace the joy of peace that will last forever in the kingdom. But there is too a judgment coming. Coming on the world for having no faith in the God of creation. But coming too on those who, who know of his purpose and yet have been an unfaithful servant. Wanting the blessings of a merciful king, 
but having no regard to show such love and mercy to others. I'm going to finish in Hebrews 10 with an exhortation to hold fast, an exhortation to remember what God can do for each one of us and how God requires us to reflect that love and mercy in our dealings one with the other. Hebrews 10 verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Such is the purpose of God. Such is the opportunity before us all. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Thank you.